to the ING, the greatest horror writer in history. So we'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. We'll tell you about adaptations by the master of scares. All right, I pulled it out at the end. That, damn. <laughs> damn. Scares. You were, scares. Pro- you were sweating and you succeeded. That's... You're like the, uh, you're like the word equivalent of like the guy you, you like the closer, you know, like you just put you in at the end, seal the deal. <laughs> I'm that guy who, if I knew the name of a real sports figure, you would reference that sports figure now in Rob this situation. <laughs> I'm that guy. You're Rob Nen for us right now, dude. Ro- Rob Nen? Rob Nen. Giants pitcher. All right, enough of that. Welcome to SportsCast, where we talk now. Uh, this is Kings of King. I am Woo. Michael Swain. And I'm Abe Epperson. And we talk about filmed adaptations of works by the renowned, the illustrious Stephen King. And this episode, we've decided to cover... Misery! <laughs> released in 1990. All right. Crushed it. And, uh, yeah, that's about that. I feel like we're three episodes in. I don't have to give all the caveats of what the show is and is not. And we could just dive in. Do you <laughs> feel that way, Aberson, or do you have anything off the top of your head to discuss? No, um, only in particular to this particular episode, and I'll mm-hmm. take it. Uh, to me, this one deems more of an academic approach, in my opinion. I'll explain why. Uh I'm not going to jump ahead to our, you know, because uh, we have different segments that we talk about it. And I don't want to jump ahead to the stand, which is our short review of the execution and where we like put it on the King Pantheon. But I want to say that as opposed to The Shining and The Mist, I think this episode um, has a lot to unpack about just what it's about rather than the operation of the moment to moment. So that's the perspective you're going to be getting from me. And that's all. I guess let's get to work. Although I think it's fortuitous we picked it because as I watched it, I think it bears a lot of comparison to The Shining more than I remember. Absolutely. And it starts with MIS, as does The Mist. So we got Mm. three quarters of the title of our second episode in. Like, it's kismet. You see what I'm saying? Yes. This was meant to be, and I'm your number one fan. So let's get into it. In our first block in this human centipede, uh, Stephen King reference, that we call... No, I'm going to get hate for that if I pretend I really think that. Um, (laughs) We call this segment Under the Dome. Our best guess puts the dome at 20,000 feet, sir. Did he just call it a dome? You think we might be stuck in here a while? It's an elevator synopsis of the movie. It's a domed synopsis. It's under the dome. I like to imagine an elevator that is itself a dome. Yeah. And yeah. you're under it. Right. And so you're ma- while you're imagining that, one of us will describe the plot. I believe I went last time, so I invite you to step in, Abe, if you're up for it. Absolutely. So like this uh, novelist, Paul Sheldon, played by James Caan, uh, is the author of a series of like Victorian romance novels. Uh, featuring a character, Misery Chastain. Uh, now, unknown to him, there is a woman who is his f- number one fan. Uh, and she basically, as he's completing in a cabin in, what is it, Silver Creek? I think that's the name, yeah. Yeah, Silver Creek. It's just a place Colorado. he goes to write his novels in a cabin. It's like a, you know, a very 
traditional. He's traditional. Yeah, it's super, super traditional of like, here's a writer's writer. He has a smoke as he finishes, drinks some champagne, drives in his car, mails the final pages from his typewriter uh, to his agent. But in doing so, there's a blizzard and his uh, car flips and uh, as he's di- he's bra- he broke his legs, uh, he's knocked unconscious. And while that happens, Kathy Bates uh, basically comes up and saves his life, takes him back uh, to Although, her sorry home. to interrupt, very important point. He doesn't mail his manuscript to his manager. Well, he's en route that to do That was his so. intent. That yeah, but he said it like he, like he achieved Oh, it. no, no, That's no. In, in transit. Yeah, and her name is Annie Wilkes, and she basically is number one fan. Uh, basically attempts to Stockholm Syndrome him, but kind of fails. Like, I don't know if she... We're going to get into it, but like more or less, he's bedridden with broken legs and a dislocated shoulder. And as her background is nurse training, uh, she basically takes care of him and uh, basically puts him through the ringer. Uh, what she does is she day to day and asks that he write uh, his next novel, reads his novels. Uh, we kind of get through this, um, you know, getting to know you phase where she realizes that she, he's not quite what she expected because she's in her head made a version of him that is perfect. And she basically uh, tortures him and uh, breaks his legs again. Uh, and he's trying to get out the whole time. That's the basic story. It ends with um, him killing her essentially by uh getting out of his wheelchair knocking her over the head with a typewriter and then uh you know after she comes back from that short unconscious state uh pegs her with a paperweight of her pig i believe mm-hmm. uh, whose name is misery whose name is misery and uh and then all is back to normal i guess although we do get a epilogue where he kind of says like oh i kind of grew through that and that's another interesting thing about this that I want to unpack. Didn't you want him after he delivered the killing blow with a bronze version of her own pig for him to just say, that'll do pig before passing <laughs> right, out? Right, right. I sure did. Reference, <laughs> reference to if he went, If he had later. just gone after this whole ordeal, that'll do pig. That'll and then he do. laughed to himself and went, good reference and, and passed out. I and then he goes, I made writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hashtag writing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a good man. That was a good man. That was a good man. So yeah, that's under the dome for you. Mm-hmm. They just tunneled out. So the plot fell apart. The dome is permeable. I like and that means- it's simplicity. <laughs> uh-huh. I like, I like that this movie is just kind of like, all right, so it's a torture situation. You gotta get out. Okay. Well, it's a granddaddy of a subgenre of horror movies, I would say, in that sense, because we've since had The Fan, The Fanatic, the new one with Fred Durst. Uh, yeah, it's like one of the earliest, and it's not the earliest, because no. there's, I mean, Sunset Boulevard is arguably Straw Dogs. Straw Dogs. I don't know if you're a fan of someone if you just want to rape them. I mean, you're a fan of their body, I guess, but... Well, it's not, um, I guess, yeah. I mean, specifically a fan stalking you and it goes too far. Um, There's a bunch of those now, and this is one of the earliest really impactful ones. And keep in mind, of course, 
that it was uh, a book even before that. And it's Stephen King writing about a writer writing. So it's definitely self-referential in a major way. And we're going to get into (laughs) that. Uh, And I want to touch on that briefly in our next segment, Skeleton Crew. Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the doors! Which is the name of a collection of short stories, which is why you're not aware of it. If you only watch the movies, and in our pod- podcast, it's about the creative team and any crew, any, any interesting behind the scenes trivia. I don't have any particulars in terms of behind the scenes stuff too much. There, uh, I do want to, you know, we're obviously going to talk about the director, the screenwriter, and the DP, right? Because they were like billed with equal weight to James Caan and at this time, the unknown yeah. Kathy Bates. Um, so I think of this segment as where we establish that information that we will be referencing. So yeah, Rob Reiner directed. And uh, I think to fit him in your head in the cultural zeitgeist, he's uh, one of the Reiners. There's Rob and Carl. Oh, I'm Googling real quick to make sure he's the one. Did he play Meathead or did Carl play Meathead? Wait, who's Meathead? All in the Family, The Son. Oh, uh, I believe that's Rob Reiner. I, uh, yeah, 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 Rob Reiner. So, that. Meathead, a.k.a. Michael Stivick, The Son on All in the Family. It's a weird poll. Not the guy Reiner. who said Stifle Edith, but the guy who said, I can't believe this racist dude's my father-in-law. That's how you uh, intro Reiner? <laughs> that's Reiner, dude. That's yeah, how the world came I, to know Reiner. I, I believe All you. All in the Family. Uh, but, I mean, he's, he's much more popular. And then later... He directed a bunch of movies. Yes, a bunch of movies, including... Name some. This is Spinal Tap, When Harry Met Sally. You know, a bunch. (laughs) I'll have what Rob Reiner... In fact, Um, this is right mm -hmm. off of When Harry Met Sally. So he is in his, like, uh, sophomore director days, and Mm. he has just created a mega-hit romance comedy. Which this sort of is in its own twisted way. I don't know. Uh, Yeah, and this is sort of a bottle episode of a movie. So James Caan is Paul Sheldon, and you know him if you've seen him. He's got frizzy hair, and he used to be in all the movies. And um, he he carries it uh, versus the person who really carries the movie, Kathy Bates, who was a revelation in this film. It uh, not was her debut necessarily, but launched her uh, a certain portion of her career in a it's big a way, breakout. brought her yeah. to the forefront. A special appearance by Lauren McCall, who's already very famous, but was just sort of hanging mm-hmm. out uh, to be the manager in the movie. So there could be a larger world. <clears throat> That's the cast. And what I wanted to say about the crew and or Stephen King's work itself which is, uh, this is also the dumping ground for stuff where like behind the scenes stuff that we're, that's going to come up in our thesis or what have you. Uh, there's a lot of speculation and I couldn't find, there's so many interviews with Stephen King and so many articles and sources, they don't all agree with each other. So I don't know if I'm absolutely correct that he's confirmed or denied, but it seems pretty apparent. Um, and the, uh, popular story goes that this book in a big way is about his own, um, struggles with addiction with substances. Uh, some people go so far as to say the snow represents cocaine and like, you know, he wants to be a writer and write something important, but on his way to achieving that a mountain of snow gets in the way and he almost dies and combine that with, of course, where he actually got the idea is creepy or un certain experiences with fans or fans who are intense or unsettling or a fan who happens to be mentally ill. 
and he must have interacted with enough that he's like, I write scary stories. What would scare me? What would scare me? Oh, if one of my fans was fucking nuts. And you're like, that makes sense. This is almost from Stephen King's point of view, low hanging fruit compared to some of his other stories. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, that would be, but he executes it. So like meat and potatoes. Well, like all, everything just works. So it works. Uh, I find it often annoying when a writer writes about a writer trying to write, Mm -hmm. but also some of the best movies ever are that, because if you're just good, you're just good. Like Synecdoche, New York is that, but you don't even think about it as a crutch, because if he was looking for a crutch, the movie wouldn't be so goddamn hard to write. (laughs) Yeah, and adaptation as well. Uh, I think the crutch actually is not writer's writing about writing, because you write what you know, et cetera, et cetera. But writers do do that a lot. Uh, writer's block that whenever we see a writer depicted as writer's block, that becomes like cliche to me. Um, but this is not about that. This is about King. He publishes the story. It's, uh, it's almost a red herring or it's just an inciting incident to the events is that he happens to be a writer. She's his number one fan. Um, but more specifically on, uh, what you're talking about with the substance abuse issues, uh, King told the Paris review quote, Annie was my drug problem and she was go. my number one fan. God, she never wanted to leave. <laughs> uh, I like that quote. Uh, it speaks yeah, very, very much so of, I think how, you know, obviously it's his words. So it speaks to what he was thinking about when he was writing it. Um, yeah. And much like the film, he's not very mysterious. Uh, mm-hmm. I, w- I, uh, I'll compare this to shining a lot and I'll touch on this more in our stand, the stand segment, but the general gist of my comparison to The Shining is it's almost executed at a same level of what I would call skill or craftsmanship or yeah. care. Reiner's knows as The saying. Shining. It's just way less what we would call artistically ambitious or philosophically ambitious. Mm. It was such, but man, I th- my big takeaway from watching this this time was what a masterclass in meat and potatoes. I know it was made in the nineties. But it it feels a little dated to me, even for the well, it's 90s. 1990s, so it's really 90, like a beholden right. of the 80s. Yeah. So to me, it feels like a movie from like 1985 that's, if this scans at all, that's like ahead of its time. Mm. But in 1990, slightly behind. But only in the sense where it's not trying to be like weird. It's not messing with the structure. Mm-mm. It's straightforward and transparent, but it does everything right. That You could, uh, you know, run this through the... Uh, save the cat, you know, any, any like screenwriting so guides checklist yeah. and you'd be like, heck yeah, it hits all of them really well. It's exactly at uh where, what? it's exactly at 10 minutes that his legs are revealed to frame. Yeah. It's nine minutes and 44 seconds, which if you don't know is an old screenwriting rule, like at 10 minutes introduce the inciting obstacle, like, Oh, this is going to be trouble. And it's literally nine minutes and 45 seconds. Yeah. They're like, his legs are broken and she walks in and goes, well, the roads are closed. And you're like, here we go. Um, so it's very by the numbers in a way that the shining is less so, but I compare them because, uh, they are, are about a writer trying to write Jack had writer's block. This writer doesn't, but in both cases, their intensity amps up and amps up and they're stuck in this house and they got to get out and it's snowing outside. So I think you can understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. Speaking of writers, uh, in the driver's seat, we got William Goldman, uh, who is off of the last thing that he had produced at this point, which was granted three years before was princess bride. 
So yeah, one Rob Reiner, screenplay, William ever. Goldman, same team. And the DP's Barry Sonnenfeld. Yes, who did the first three Coen brothers. He also had uh, shot Big, and he was coming off fresh from Rob Reiner's uh, When Harry Met Sally the year before. Then he did this. Then he never DP'd again. The reason you probably know his name, because DPs aren't well su- like super known, but directors are, is that in 1991, a year after this, he came on to scene crazily with Adam's family and has directed ever since he's the guy who did, uh, men in black. I, you know. I was going to say, I feel like, or to me, his directorial hit of all hits is men in black. It's gotta be. Yeah. It's I just love men in blood. black. Well, it's, a I, it's yeah. yeah. Uh, but he started with the Coens, just a little bit of, um, you know, that's true. Yeah. Wait, blood simple, right? He did blood simple, raising Arizona and Miller's crossing. Nice. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it, huh? Yeah. Uh, and by that, I mean, let's get into it. Yeah. If you come with me, you'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float too. Scene work themes and symbology. Yeah. It is what it is, which is so we're like, now we just talk. If you listen to our other show, One Upsmanship, this would be analogous to Game On. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so did you have any overarching, uh, like on this rewatch, did you think any thoughts that were new or anything like, oh, this puts a new perspective, a lot different from what I thought this movie was about? Because I did. I'll tell you, Abe, not at all. And that's why I have a film analysis podcast. No, I totally did. (laughs) Especially because since I've watched this, I have... Like grown, drank in secret, admitted it to my loved ones and gone to AA and stopped drinking. So mm-hmm. my own little like journey of substance abuse, you know, I got to, it's one of the superpowers of going through any trauma is now things Everything on that theme that. are richer. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I was watching it going, oh yeah, man. Oh, I get that. Hell yeah. yeah. Hell that yeah. resonates right there. Yeah. Um, and I think also interestingly from our perspective, uh, I've met crazy fans at cracked that I've had scary fans and the, the, uh, haunting image at the end, whenever I've watched this movie before, I was like, yeah, it's just that horror thing where the zombie hand comes out of the grave, right? It's scary. Don't forget, it's still scary. But this time, having actually had some scary interactions with fans who are mentally ill, uh, it just, it actually truly horrified me because I actually keyed into really thinking about it and imagining and projecting myself like, yes, if a fan, when he's like, oh, it's fine, it's fine, you know, sometimes it comes up, but I think I'm over it. But it's like, you wouldn't be, dude. This guy will... Because he knows that he's famous enough. I mean, he's a novelist, but he's famous enough that one crazy person built her whole life around his work and then uh, broke his ankles with a sledgehammer. So who's to say he's safe anywhere in public that anyone can see him ever? It's just a very invasive, the, yeah. the where he would feel unsafe, which is almost any public place, was terrifying to me. It's like at the end of Jaws, Man, what an ordeal, but should you survive, it's optional to ever be near a shark ever again, but it's too late. Every, like, he had this series of hit novels, 
what's he going to do? If there's another Annie Wilkes in the universe, too bad for him. I hope he doesn't run into her. Uh, so that really got me. And and I have a lot of other stuff, but you sounded like you had a more cohesive overarching one, so go for it. No, I mean, like, let's unpack that just because, like, if there's anything else you want to talk about, because I think that that is exactly what, like, um, like, it's exactly what, it, like, he was talking ab- about. It's interesting because King would only sell the movie rights to Rob Reiner because mm-hmm. after he did Stand By Me, uh, King would only allow Castle Rock, uh, Reiner's production company, to get involved with Misery if uh, he produced or directed it. So having done so, he was supposed to direct it, and like it was very precious to Stephen King. You know what I mean? Like uh, Misery is, as he said, uh, one of his top ten favorite film. Uh, adaptations, mm-hmm. which, you know, is kind of saying a lot. I mean, I think top 10 now, I think when he wrote that, it was probably in the early nineties. Uh, so there's been a, quite a bit of update, but like he's, he's made, he's had a lot of stuff, uh, made. And, uh, he says, uh, quote in the early eighties, my wife and I went to London on a combined business pleasure trip and I fell asleep on the plane, had a dream about a popular writer. Uh, and, uh, it may or may not have been me, but sure to God, it wasn't James Caan. So he had disagreements with it. Uh, and that's something that in this podcast we'll talk about a lot is that Stephen King often is very vocal about like the presentation of his ideas through the film medium. Um, he was more so precious about this one that I think, other films, despite the fact that, like, as the zeitgeist goes, uh, The Shining is a big one because I think that's a com- like a combination of two two different crazy uh, minds at work. You right? Have it's not like Reiner. Reiner will actually strap in to do honor to the yes. story. Kubrick's gonna stick his dick in. Like Kubrick's not gonna not yeah, also exactly. add shit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, there was a. You know, it was supposed to be um, George Roy Hill was the original director, and he directed Butch Cassidy and yeah, the Sundance Kid. Another great Kid. director, very classical Sting, Hollywood Slapshot, director. yeah. Uh, and he 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 basically changed his mind because King was not a nightmare to work with, but he was just like, I gotta have the uh, scene where the an axe comes down because in the book. Uh, it's not a sledgehammer to the feet. It's cutting off his feet. Um, mm. And Goldman agreed with him. But, uh, that it should be cutting off his feet? Yeah, initially. And then Reiner jumped in and said, you know what, I'm not just producing, I'm directing it. Uh, I'm going to change the script for this. And then Goldman later said Reiner was right because of probably internal discussions that we're not. And also probably because the legacy leg, Mm -hmm. a C Mm -hmm. because, uh, it, it has become, and it's so simple that shot where if you freeze frame and go through, like, it seems like he just turns his foot to the side at the time that a rubber sledgehammer hits his ankle. But the image of her hobbling him has become one of the enduring moments of the film. Whereas I think if you did like she takes a hacksaw to his ankles, ironically, I know that's gorier, but it's the kind of thing we've, we had already seen more often 
Hobbling is such an archaic, it fits so well with her character. She's a nurse and she's like, this is how they used to keep slaves from running away. So it's like mm-hmm. antiquated, but she's appealing to the history of medical science or whatever. She's like, this mm-hmm. is a procedure. I'm hobbling you. It has a name. Um, whereas mm-hmm. if she just hacked his feet off with a hacksaw, I'm sure it might work in the book, but uh, I like the sledgehammer a lot better, I got to say. <clears throat> I th- Here's my two cents on this and it kind of speaks to the addiction thing that you're talking about because I couldn't help this time, uh, not examine this film with the, uh, and it's something that Rob Reiner talked about is that apparently James Conn overheard Rob Reiner talking to himself and then, uh, said it in an interview later, but like, uh, he heard, he overheard, uh, Reiner talking to himself. Uh, and he was, after he was watching like a playback, he was like, what do you, who do you think you are? Fucking Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> and I just love that mm-hmm. because that's what in this story, of course you're going to jump to because you have upon your shoulders an update essentially that Stephen King wrote, uh, that is rear window. It's rear window in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, not identical, obviously, but, uh, wherein, whereas in that film, Jimmy Stewart, and this is to me why, like, I don't know. I'll just give out my thought. Uh, in that film, Jimmy Stewart spied on the secret lives of his neighbors, revealing that for many, they have like a hidden secret, true life that they keep in the cover of nighttime or behind closed doors where people, you don't think people are looking. Uh, and so he's able to temporarily pop outside the normal viewing lens of daily life due to his broken legs. Like that's what his broken legs affords him in rear window. Mm -hmm. Now in misery, James Conn is spied upon when Annie mistakes his fictions for true life, right? That's her, the nature of her addiction in her fabrication. That's inspired by Paul's stories. She becomes Jimmy Stewart with a horrible agenda. Essentially she's using the normal viewing lens of daily life as a cover of darkness to continue taking hostage of Paul. So in rear window, it's more about the horror of who can be watching and what they're learning and what, and for what purpose in misery, it's about the horror of who isn't watching. Like what kind of hell can other people get away with creating like essentially just a world of like a hell for you when no one thinks to look. And that to me is a kind of the nature of addiction in a a real sense, because it's not because yes, for like someone who's addicted, I think that there's something very real about other people's perception of what is going on in front of them. Like, are you drunk right now? Are you high right now? But in this one, it's a deeper self evident thought, which comes from, do people know what I'm up to? when, when they don't think about it, you know, like there's so much that so much damage I'm doing to myself by doing all this cocaine. And I think that that is kind of like an up. And I think that Rob Reiner kind of felt like he had to put those on his shoulders. And he felt like Hitchcock said this King is going through this huge thing right now, obviously. Uh, what the fuck am I doing in this equation? What is my place as director of this whole thing? How do I do that? I think he, um, I think it's all in the surface material. 
But I think that Reiner kind of did it justice. But that's just something I thought of when I thought of Rear Window is about the discrepancy of the two and how it kind of impacts and speaks about the nature of those maladies. Yeah, although for the record, they are looking for him, but it's it's pretty elegant how Not once he's dead, believable you know? things. It's uh, there. Th- I like again. I'm just going to keep talking about the efficiency of the transparent work. Like for example, mm-hmm. the classic or the thing that tipped me off where I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be a good masterclass in meat and potatoes filmmaking is that the credits come up, the storm is intensifying. They're contrasting the storm with, and the word misery with a really jazzy tune that's playing and it pans from left to right. And on the left, his car's coming to frame. So it's literally the information Mm -hmm. of like, he's driving. We see a a road sign that has the windy curves ahead thing getting like over dusted with snow. So it's like, uh oh, windy road with snow in front of it. And then he starts to peel out and they take the time in editing to have him grab the wheel and look like he's going to regain control. But his manuscript starts to slip away. He reaches for it and he so crashes. Com- so yeah, they're so, like, he couldn't yeah. give up the book or he could have mm-hmm. probably steered out of the skid. And from that moment on, I Priorities. was like, yeah. everything's going to mean something. It's going to be not that hard to decode but it's going to be there and it really follows through with that so much so that i do think like i would have to argue that rob reiner is doing honor like you said to the he's not just annie wilkes is not just substance abuse because there are movies like less than zero or uh, you know train spotting like you you sure you can talk about substance abuse you can even uh anthropomorphize substance addiction as a humanoid creature that's all well and good i don't think this is only doing that annie wilkes also is a crazy fan specifically i think supposed to be depicted as like extreme bipolarism and potential borderline or sociopathy where she can't also can't empathize with other people but definitely the mood swing thing which is very chillingly rendered where she goes between euphoric thinking Paul will come around and marry me and he'll write a book in my honor dedicated to me for saving him. I will become the light of the world, she says. So it's this delusions of grandeur and then coupled with, man, I love, and it's Kathy Bates delivery. I'm sure the direction was there as well. But uh, when she's depressed, she chose to do flat affect depression, not crying depression. And I find that so much more Mm -hmm. chilling. Like when she goes, I've got a gun. It's got got bullets. I think about using it. I think I'll put bullets in the gun. She's so tempered. And he goes, and and she goes like, she goes like once for you, once for me, I'm going to kill us. That's the plan. When she reveals like, that's my delusion. This is going to end with murder. suicide. He goes, it's uh, absolutely my favorite scene with her. Yeah. It's where he goes, but then you'll never find out the ending of the book. And I, I love you now. Don't you want to be together? And I love that even in that moment, the euphoria doesn't come back. She goes, God, Paul, I love you so much and walks away. And you're like, it's still creepy. Even though he's getting, going from downtrodden to getting the upper hand, you're terrified. Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's like, you're trying to install an emotion to this moment. You're wrong. He's trying to play her. And she can't be played because her emotions are beyond logical comprehension. That was one weak point, or I don't know, it could be believable, but I thought it was interesting that from square one to square end, uh, Paul Sheldon's tactic is always to gaslight her by pretending he likes it. 
which is a pretty yeah. narrow range of tactics. I could see you doing many other things. For example, he never tries the tactic, like he never calls her out. You know what I mean? In the early phases where she's just kind of creepy, he never says, Annie, this is kidnapped. Never. He just says stuff like, um, yeah, that's good, Annie. I do love yeah. you. And tries, he's immediately playing cat and mouse with her. This is minor and I like the movie, so we should move on. But I, I did feel that like, it's like he's aware they're playing cat and mouse a little earlier than is realistic. Whereas I think some people would say, he never says the classic line, excuse me, what the fuck is going on? You know what I mean? He's just immediately yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm embroiled in a game of cat and mouse, <laughs> but it's fine. That's super valid. And I don't want to, I don't actually, cause I also had a note on the intelligence of, uh, the main character. Cause I, uh, I think that what you just said is super valid. I do remember like when we talk about films, we usually talk about like, uh, like the bed you've made, right? We talk about like, all right, well, you're in this now. This is the choice that you made in this closed system. And I remember thinking to myself when I was watching this, uh, you know, like if I was in the situation, like we all often do with horror films, right. like what, what would I do? Um, I love that King does respect his characters more than conventional screenwriting tactics because take for example the pill scene where he's in bed and he's like hiding the pills and he's you know he's basically like well okay you're hiding pills now she if she finds those she'll know you're a liar and she'll probably kill you so i remember immediately thinking before because it's been a while since i'd seen this movie so i'd forgotten about this small detail i remember immediately thinking empty the capsules eat the pill shell or skin what do you call whatever that is i I love how king and goldman kept that intact don't over explain or half him talking to himself or have the audience witness him quote, figure it out. Like so many TV and TV and films today. Like you just see him get the paper, open the pills, taste the powder to see if they have a taste so they can poison her later or knock her out later, uh, which ends up failing, put them in a paper sleeve that he can like put on his body, realize that he has to hide the pill remnants and just realizes that he can just eat them. And it all happens in less than a minute. You know his plan, what he's thinking, how he's actively problem solving with all those inserts and just a single shot of James Conn's face. Yeah. That's efficiency. It's a, I like mm. what, I, I know what you mean about how he's like, he didn't try different tactics, but what it does give you is it gives you a like masterclass in like, here's how this, t- his person is trying to solve the problem let's give time to that kind of thing. Yeah. And King doesn't always play that game. He'll play it again, notably in Gerald's game where she's stuck in bed as well. And Mm. there is a lot of silent action of her figuring out a process of how to solve a problem. And, uh, I just think that's really interesting because in some way it does fly in the face of classic screenwriting convention, which would be, you don't show the interstitial process of something happening. For example, right. you don't show Doc Brown laboriously working on the time machine. Right. He te- you cut in when he says, Eureka, I've done it. Great, Scott, a time machine. Now we're cooking. Like you always cut to now we're cooking. Yeah. But I have found that or it's really compelling when a filmmaker has the confidence to and pulls it off. Uh 
delve into the minutia of how process itself is interesting, especially if you do the other thing that it hurts to do, which is not explain it. Trust the audience to silently figure out what they're thinking. It is not classically what a screenplay should be doing because two other modern things that I think really embody this spirit and you don't see, you see it even less today. Breaking Bad is obsessed, Vince Gilligan in general, with showing the details of a process where you don't know why Mike is doing that. He just lays a bunch of shit out and then folds some shit and you go, oh, he was doing that. Oh, now I understand. I think that's because a lot of people, a lot of writers Mm -hmm. too, think that like uh, figuring it out is a godliness, like the solving of a problem is beautiful within itself. The other one it reminds me of is Blue Ruin, which is like, and actually it's one of of the first movies by the guy who did Green Room and- yeah. I highly recommend it, especially as a pair to pair with misery, because it similarly is just like the minutiae of a process. He needs a gun. So he breaks into a car and steals one, but it has a trigger lock on it. So he tries to break it with a rock. It's very rare that a film can just be, how's he going to figure this out? And you don't mean how's the character going to grow or let go of hate or get in touch with themselves. You mean, how's he going to get that rock from over here to over there where it has to be? That's hard to make very interesting. And Misery has that same action going on where there's so many very, and so does Rear Window famously, tense, tense moments where the challenge is just, he's got to get five feet from the floor to the bed in X amount of time or bad stuff's going to happen. Wow, it's riveting. And that's hard to make riveting. It's harder than it seems to have that elegance and And still easy to belabor it. Yeah, without belaboring it or without someone, you know, without Ryan Reynolds in a box calling you on your cell phone and going, I've got to get out of this box. Shit is urgent. Like, you know, I'm Tom Hardy and I'm in a car. I'm upset. (laughs) I'm upset right now. Getting upset. Um, and it's yeah. fine. Those are fine films. Lock and Buried are fine sure, films. Sure, so okay. whatever it was you called. Know, but buried. like it's it. But when we talk about belaboring that, they're straddling they're different the line. Games. I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Uh, there's another aspect that I uh, wanted to mention. If this is a segue, or if you had more to say on any topic, I have a ton of stuff. I have a ton of stuff. Well, you'll interrupt it. See, as well go. Or I mean, like the flow diverted back to you. Go ahead. I guess it's true that I win. So I want to talk about, and hopefully it's like simpatico with something else you were talking about, is about the female horror horror villain. The mating habits of toucans. Toucans. Uh, And talking about um, how Stephen King presents the story and uh, the conversations that occurred after it in film criticism world and, you know, life um, of feminism versus misogyny. And um, so I want to so there's a lot of interesting things going on here and there's a lot of sad things going on here. Um, first off, female horror villain. Don't see a lot of them. Bates kills it. Let's get that out of the way. It's not a feminist film, however. If anything, it's the opposite. Uh, I mean, in the like timeless sense, it's important to show that women taking different roles and, and this film is in, seminal in provoking this conversation, but in the sense of the operation of scenes, we never really take Annie's perspective, right? Um, Again, that's her mental probably illness ca- is not treated as a tragedy. 
She's just yes. treated as a crazy motherfucker. You better get away from. Mm. I hope she dies soon. She's too crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and again, again, a caveat. One can argue you don't really see Leatherface's perspective because right. it's a horror movie, uh, not a movie about the trauma yeah. of mental illness, which is a valid other kind of movie. Right. Right. <laughs> and also, un- unlike Chainsaw Massacre, we exist in Annie's domain the entire movie. It's a single location, a home, which is curated for all, not just her captives. She displays the world like to. to to me, this is like while hiding a huge trespass in plain sight, uh, it's her home. There's papers that uh, piqued my interest, including uh, there's a uh, Carol Clover's had this uh, paper. She's kind of a well-known criticist, uh, like critic, critic. <laughs> uh, men, women, chainsaws, gender in modern horror film. And another paper I read called Imagining the Worst King and the Representation of Women. And the theory is basically this. That in misery, all the oppressive forces that like basically repress Paul Sheldon are female. It's mostly too obviously Wilkes and Misery, the fictional character. Um, it's are you? We haven't mentioned that, that theme. Just so you can follow along, it should be mentioned. Uh, he hates the character Misery that Annie Wilkes loves because it's yeah, like his true. Animorphs or what have you. It's all he's written. And he yeah. really wants to write something new. So the, feels if like you that. haven't seen the movie, the, the reason she flips out at the midpoint and it really amps up to torture is she finds out he's planning to kill Misery off, and that mm-hmm. is unacceptable to her. Go on. Go yeah. On. Well, uh, one of the things that the paper also argues is that Lauren Bacall, uh, a.k.a. Marcia, his mm-hmm. agent, uh, takes advantage of his paycheck. I agree less with that claim as I I literally think that Lauren Bacall does absolutely nothing wrong in this film. From her perspective, she's getting a writer published, doing her job. He accidentally dies. She follows and then up. She, she calls the police. Life. And yeah, yeah she, she does. So I don't know if. But I think that the argument is that, like, it's about the female trespassing into the male domain. Uh, and I think money and, like, self-empowerment is kind of something it's trying to take the wind out of the sails of being a male-centric thing. So that's fair. So in any case, this theory, Wilk tortures him physically and mis- Misery Chastain prevents Sheldon from becoming a real writer, right? Rather than acting as, like, a like a sex-crazed maniac, Wilk poses as a nearly... Like uh, I don't uh, pur- uh, puritanical kind of housewife. Yeah, I and love. She's also she a former says uh, it's very reminiscent of Hurricane Nettie, the classic Simpsons episode. Exactly. She's uh, part of what makes her scary is you can feel the seething rage beneath her, and in fact, you find out. She's killed many people and taken over aspects of their lives. And her thing lately is right. killing babies. Like uh, for the last 10 years, she's killed as many yep. babies as she can. So she's like, and you can sense that she's capable of violence all the time, but she thinks swearing is uncouth. So she says like, when she like threatens to kill him, she's like, I'm sorry, I made you feel oogie. And uh, then mm-hmm. like uh, she constantly calls people cockadooties, which I love the break yeah. on that. Because another thing about this movie that's when she says fucker is she yeah. calls him a cocksucker. It's uh, cocksucker, when they're yeah. actually fighting for the to the death. She says, fuck you, eat shit, you cocksucker. It's like, obviously, 
she that she was capable of swearing she murders babies like you knew that was in her and so by showing the restraint it's like the mask is off how do you know this crazy person's ramped it up to 11 she's saying cocksucker she always said cock-a-duty up till now and i i love this is a classic maneuver that is very hitchcockian is the film does what so few horror movies do these days it shows so much restraint it's not, it doesn't feel that I, oh, it's hostile rules. It's about torture. I got to show a guy's balls get cut off in the first 15 minutes to deliver on the promise of the premise. No, no, no. They don't play that game. They got your money. You're watching the thing. It's a thing. So they're like, how much more jarring is it if he is very tense, but always within movie decorum rules throughout the whole movie. Like he's like, he acts like a Hitchcock character. Oh no, I'm scared. I wish I could escape. But then in the final moment where he actually, uh, she's already like, he has the upper hand. He's safe. He could walk away. He it's, it's obscene. It's grotesque. Like they obviously told James Gunn, And I understand where you're coming from with this paper by why you bring it in, because it actually makes you feel bad. Like it's funny. I look, dude, I know she's crazy and she tortured you and she's murdered a million babies, but this almost scene has now turned into like a dude beating his wife because you're enjoying Mm. that upper hand too much. And it's not like I grant you that animal instinct in the moment, but it is upsetting in a different way when he's already beaten her yet. He shoves the ashes of the book. It's just like cook thief, wife and lover, which yeah, yeah. he shoves the ashes of the book down her throat and goes, you want the fucking book? You want misery? You crazy fucking bitch choke on it. Choke on the fucking book till you die. You stupid stupid bitch and you're like yeah. whoa dude whoa yeah. <laughs> yeah it's uh like even down no it's at, and i want to like i want to unpack this because yeah. like it's it kind of s- speaks to like king like is it known or is it unknown in the in the writing of these words he's obviously a male writer and even the like baby deaths thing like even that signals to me like uh, he he's choosing this interplay between domestication yeah. and genocide. Oh, in every like, way, she's a black widow. She's the doting wife who killed yeah. her husband, then became the doting nurse who kills the babies she cares for. It, you're right. It's all about violating. It's reversing what's expected of a domestic woman. She's going to do the opposite. Like like a male dominant horror usually depicts physical dominance in like all regards. Uh, Annie can do these things. Like you said, but what is it saying when her background is crimes against the killing of the helpless, right? Mm-hmm. Women traditionally are taught to be the caretakers. So it'd be a male fear that the household betray this kind of unspoken sanctity of the innocent, the defenseless, which is James Caan in this example. And the baby. Yeah, it's specifically that scary before. that she's a female nurse because it's all yeah, the movie is definitely well. I would not go as far as to call it misogynistic, but there's no question that it's written by a male. Like the male gaze, yeah. it's sympathetic to a male's understanding of male navigating fear. the world. Because what you're scared of is, Which you is, know how every time you have a scary thing in the hospital and you wake up, those female nurses are so nice. What if one was evil? That's scary. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that's from it's, a male point of view by default in some way. Yeah, it's also like a strange fear, but that's... 
beside the but point. But it's not it's strange still... for horror writers to go, what's something that's comforting? If I reverse it, that would be scary. Yeah. yeah. What's the game? Yeah. Uh, and it's not something that he necessarily plays all the time. So I want to give him that. I don't think he's like, like a raging it, sexist as far as I can tell. But No, yeah. I, it's not to me about thumbs up, thumbs right. down, Stephen King. It's more of like, what's the work doing? And uh, so if her associations are with like healing because she's a nurse and it's not like the pain, then pain and business, like, you know, like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or like an American Psycho, you know, where it's like male dominant. Instead, she portrays what violence would look like if a domestic woman controlled the world, right? And Misery, on the other side, explores uh, like a uh, traditional kind of like woman in her element uh, doing what she wants to, is free, all the things that, uh, you know, Annie loves about her. And so we get this kind of dichotomy, which kind of is simpatico with the... Uh, traditional female gender iconography of the Madonna and the whore, right? right? So, like, this movie is very concerned that women are gaining power in areas where they already have it. <laughs> it's just like, that's very strange to me, which kind of brings us to marriage. Like, the emphasis of control of uh, Sheldon's creativity throughout the film is also another thing. She's literally telling him what to write because she doesn't like the profanity. Um, it's very, very like concern with marriages or the idea of like a man letting a woman dictate what things are and how that affects men. That is where it seems that this horror story is taking place. Am I wrong about that? I don't think you're wrong. I just think there's a danger in ascribing everything to everything when things are a mix of things. And what I mean by that is that... I think it shows that we all have unexamined, like Stephen King, I would argue probably without thinking about it too much as a test, as a treatise on gender, by default Mm -hmm. wrote it with a male gaze. And that's why we can make papers like the one you cited, where we collate a bunch of stories from fiction and see trends and patterns and go, this gives insight into the way people behave and think en masse. Mm -hmm. It does. Mm -hmm. But I would also argue that if you follow me, like, and I think this is what you're referencing at the top of this chunk of the discussion, any women should be allowed to be a crazy psycho killer and it, and it not <laughs> matter that they are either gender or any gender. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, you could view it as she happens to be a woman. She's also crazy motherfucker, which is scary. It's not scary only cause she's a woman, but I agree with you that he's banking off the point of, yeah, but it's extra scary because she's a f- nurse and I am appealing to the icon of the classic female nurse. And in that regard, I thought the fact that it's feminine energy being perverted makes it extra scary. And to be honest, that's an extra layer of fear that will only resonate to people who view the world through a masculine gaze. Yep, Whatever gender they may point. identify as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people who buy into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think uh, the I think core of like, it would also be scary if anyone defense. of any gender kidnapped you and broke your ankles. Yes, it would. that's right. also true. Like there's a core of horror that is just true to any human, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we, all these conversations should be tempered in that. It's it's just funny to look at the past. Totally. Or not maybe funny, but just like interesting to look at the past when you 
like see like well everything is product of the things that came before well it. similarly and it feels like this movie is in the 80s you know I, it really yes is. it does very much feel like that and that's also what made me wonder uh the so because of that it's funny or similarly there's a couple things i read into i was like is that what stephen king's trying to say one being the flashback at the beginning which i find a little heavy-handed but again it's like straightforward and efficient. It's it's so efficient mm. that I'm like, okay, you did an expository flashback, but you did it right. You kept it quick. It is couched in terms of these people would be saying these things to each other. It's not unnecessarily expository. And he's just going to his agent like, this is what I am. This is what I want. This is what I'm about. Okay, back to the movie. Um, but one of the things he says is, I want to change. I want to write something that's actually important. Something I quote might want on my tombstone. And I haven't been a writer since I got into the misery business. Now he's mm. saying since I created the character misery, but Stephen King obviously is a good enough writer to be aware of how that sounds. So I'm wondering, was that Stephen King's saying there's moments where he feels hemmed in by horror? Like I haven't mm. been a real writer since I got into the misery business. Now that could be anywhere from a joke King put in about how others view him. You know, like I know people think I'm shitty cause I only write horror. So I'll reference that. Or he could be revealing that, you know, sometimes I do feel pigeonholed that I can only write horror with the rare exception of your Shawshanks or your what have you's. Um, but I just think there's got to be some resonance there. I don't know how seriously he means it, but uh, to have your writer character say, I haven't been a writer since I got into the misery business and you are the writer of misery and horror. Um, yeah. There's got to be something Which there. Is yeah. a business of misery. Yeah. yeah. And the, uh, <laughs> there's multiple tears. That's a good statement coming from a writer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, when he talks to, when the sheriff interviews the desk clerk at the hotel, on his yeah. way of finding out again, very efficient. The, the old befuddled sheriff, just one, two, three, four, five solves the case. I loved that B arc of like sheer efficient detective work. But, um, the first beat is he goes to the hotel and he's like, this guy's missing. Was he here? You know, the due diligence detective work. Incidentally, most shocking line in the movie to me is the end of this scene where he goes, thanks, Libby. And I'm like, that guy's name was Libby this whole time. But in that same scene, I just love thinking Stephen King writing this about Paul Sheldon. He's like, yeah. so you talk to Paul Sheldon. What's he like? He's a celebrity. Is he up his own ass? And he goes, no, 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 no. He's no, pretty, no, no, no. Uh, Stephen King. I mean, Paul Sheldon. Great guy. I know he's a world famous writer that everyone says is the, like a voice of a generation, but he's also super nice and down to earth. And I'm like, come on, Stephen King. This yeah. is too transparent. Yeah. There was once he saved a baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, and, and hey, another comparison point. Did this old sheriff, now watching it in a modern context, not give you flashes of Tommy Lee Jones from No Country? Yeah, he has the exact did. same because charm with so his many wife. Solitary, well, so many solitary moments with like paperwork, you know, like the the yeah the grind of the job of sheriffing. There's you know, that like, spice again. <laughs> he's just like, oh well, notice this detail. Yeah. Hmm. Put that back in the old nog, the old steel <laughs> exactly. trap. You know, it's just like, all right, all this wisdom will somehow oh. 
create results. The old Texas sheriff who everyone thinks won't solve the case, but he just notices things one at a time is an archetype yeah. I never get tired of. It's hilarious. Colum- and, it's Columbo this- essentially like, oh, and one more thing. Your shoelace is untied, which means you hung that guy. <laughs> yeah. And then he just totally gets shot. Shot literally out the movie. I the one thing I will shot out of some, frame and never seen again. <laughs> exactly. I will throw fucking Reiner on the table for this one. She's going up and down the stairs right where he is supposed to be. Like she's having no problem walk forward. And it's not like it, it was literally a blocking choice from a director because like Kathy Bates would be the first one knowing her process and what people have written about it and what she said. Like she would be the first one to be like, I can't step there. There's a body there. And there's no way she wouldn't have thought of that on set. She's a smart actor. Yeah. And literally he falls onto the stairs and like presumably falls a little bit down uh, a ways, you know, because how stairs are the bottom of the stairs. I'll give you that. Not at the bottom though, because that's where James Conn is. Yeah. And we see it. So he's somewhere on the stairs and it can't be that long of a stairs. And she's like going up and down and she's getting a wheelchair to go pick him up. So it's, like, it's almost like the movie's asking us to say, and then we cut. And then she realizes, oh, I can't do this wheelchair business. I actually have to put it back. Lift a dead body, throw it away, get the chair again, go down the stairs and pull James Conn up. You know, uh, so it's it's like that doesn't matter because it's a good movie and we you know if you're enjoying a movie you don't think about all those little tiny bits of nonsense but it is something that i was like man they really didn't want like once he's dead he like that's all we need from him and all of his plot lines and all the real estate that we put in this movie is just to show that annie wilkes will go this far for Paul Sheldon being right. uh, her like the forced husband. And yet you know, in like, a way that's what's funny is, and well, you, you start to realize, Oh, okay. She's equipped for this. You're like, is, did she just spontaneously get this good at doing this? And it's like, no, she does this. Right. No. But, um, but this is like her big fish. This is a guy she never thought she'd get to do this to, which she feels yeah. like God delivered this to her. Um, but I do think it's notable and interesting how she's not sophisticated. And I guess that just plays into the idea that he feels like his art has become stagnant. But the ending that he writes during the montage that she loves is so transparently stupid that it is, it's like the plot from that Futurama episode with the Royal jelly. She's like, she comes in when he's writing the fake right. version leading up to his plan to actually kill her. And she's like, Oh, I Paul, love how you did this. it's brilliant. Yeah. She was dead. And I love the part where she's like, you can't cheat. You can't retcon, which is right. so internet. That is exactly what a fan would say. You can't retcon. No. You have to go from she's dead. They buried her. How do you how do you take it back? This is how it and goes. And he's like, uh, oh, Paul, it was brilliant that the bee sting she has a rare allergy to, and it put her in a coma, and she only seemed dead. And I'm like, it works. She perfect. thinks that bri- that's brilliant. These books do suck. Like if that fits mm-hmm. in with that book, that's a shitty plot point. Yeah. And he, and she's like, and how amazing that it turns out she's descended from royalty. And I like, always knew she was. I love that he's just writing like jerk off motion fan service shit for her. Yeah. Like whatever, dude. I know exactly what you'll like. Here's this garbage. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> this is just Stephen King went to Comic-Con. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, I love that little dig on fans <laughs> that Stephen King is doing yeah. there. You know, it's like, that's all it really is. Right. And like, I love that she doesn't need to be anything more than that, but it's perfect for what it is. Also very similar to the shining. The thing that lets someone finally know, Oh, this person's crazy. Shit is popping off is a, is paper is typing paper. Um, and it's that in this case, it's that she purchases it. Although it's just interesting how these elements swirl around. This also has a shot of repeated words on a page, but instead of Jack as a dull boy, it's fuck, 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 which I think is actually underrated as a companion moment to all work and no play makes Jack. That fuck, 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 fuck is great because they show his face first and his expression is very bizarre you're like, what could he be typing that's making him make that face? And then it just shows that he's just been typing. Fuck, 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 fuck. I'm so fucked. Like, yeah. Fatigued of thought. Like, what do I do? Yeah. It's, it's but I just love that the, page, the sheriff you know? solves it because of like a literal paper trail. Both newspapers and she bought paper. And he's like, she this paper, proves yeah. the case. Yeah. Not to mention the books are, you know, the key to it. Hey, you know, like her, and Stephen King that. famously still writes on a typewriter. If Paul Sheldon had kept up to speed with people and written on a home computer, he wouldn't have fucking got his legs broke, dude. Mm-hmm. She would just grab the computer and he'd be fucked. Well, and she wouldn't have leverage over him because when she grabs the manuscript, she's like, I'm going to burn it. And he's like, fine. And she's like, I know for a fact this is the only existing copy. And he's like, rats, you got me. It is. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's like, what are you going to do? Burn my typewriter? Because you need the typewriter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's what the computer would be. Well, and they they make little hints of her being unsophisticated. She calls it Dom Perignon. She watches the dating game obsessively, which is just like trash TV. That's fun to watch. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Those little touches are so interesting and very few poofs. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, I think that's just another subtle, not so subtle. Like fans are dumb. Sometimes fans are dumb. I'm not saying like everybody. I'm just saying like the dumb fans will do this. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. (laughs) And if you were talking about what's the fan from hell, it would be, it would have to be a fan a that ends up causing you terrible trauma. But another aspect would be, it would have to be a fan that loves your work for all the wrong reasons that actually you go like, no, that's not what I was trying to get across at all. You make me feel like I wasted my life writing. So she's the fan from hell in that sense too, you know? Yeah. She loves his work because you have to, to be a fan by definition. But when he goes, you love it. Oh, great. So my writings made an impact. What's the impact? She says all this shit that he's like, that's stupid though. it at all. I hate this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of symbology in this movie as well. Mm. I thought that like, there's something honest and humble to me, uh, not to sound up my own ass in terms of like, when you write a story, you want to make it of many, a few parts as possible, you know, like consolidation of theme, consolidation of, it doesn't have to just become one thing because you need conflict, but like, there's only a few like 
actual images in this movie as opposed to any other type like horror movie where there's like, yeah, there's like a knife and there's, but it's like there's locations and locations and locations. There's a bunch of things that help people get in and out of scenes. This talk about efficiency. There's like a typewriter, a paperweight, a car pills. Like there's on my one hand, I can put all the things that he tries he tries to utilize in order to get himself out of the problem or someone else externally is using to get him. And King is great at that, which is one of my favorite horror slash thriller games is uh, a well-established toolkit of like, like let's say the protagonist, a 14 year old girl and she's being chased by some kind of monster on her way home from school. You establish the six things in her backpack and you see her use all six each in a different resourceful way. Like I love when, yeah. And this works on, this is working on in that bag of tricks for sure. Yeah. And you want to like minimize the reason I think you want to minimize the interference, the amount of interference. Yeah. The amount of interference and the uh, consolidation of like, uh, you know, one object with a thought like a typewriter is a very, very loaded image because it's like his lifeblood. It's how he it's his career. It's the instrument of killing Annie. It's a useful weight for conditioning his shoulder back to health. Uh, it It's the bridge that. Paul relies upon to keep Annie's swings of violence at bay. It's he uses the same tool. He unknowingly captured her mind to craft a new fiction that keeps him safe from it. It's a kind of like the reverse Stockholm syndrome is done by a acting the part and B writing the part. And the instrument of which in both answers is to be at the typewriter typing to be close to the typewriter, to do things with the typewriter. And there's something to, there's something elegant in that. Oh, yeah. I, th- I mean, they're the fundamental elements of visual storytelling. That's why I love books that are like... Dic- These exist, uh, dictionaries of symbols and encyclopedias of symbols. And uh, one of the secrets of written storytelling and comedy, but we can't get into... One day we'll do a class on like our actual math equations that we think make things funny. We could be wrong, but we have some mathematical ideas about how comedy works. (laughs) And I find them endlessly interesting to talk about. And one uh, fundamental rule that comes up a lot in comedy writing and horror and comedy are intrinsically linked uh, is the emotional charge of an icon. For example, a president has less emotional charge and therefore will create a less of a payoff when contrasted with other elements than Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln makes most people who encounter the phrase think beard, tall hat, mole on the face, potentially depressed, civil war, honest. Um, That's a lot of directions and things you can work with. If you write a sketch Mm -hmm. where Abraham Lincoln is dishonest, you're already got a stew going. That's funny because it's everyone understands. If you make a video where a president is dishonest, that could be a drama, a comedy. I don't really know what you're saying yet. Or not enough elements. Right, right, right. (laughs) It could just be a statement. Presidents are dishonest. Yeah, yeah. No, that checks out. But you see what I'm saying is like, I love the, the painter of story who is confident enough to use a limited palette of icons that are so well selected because they have the most universal emotional charge. Like if you're only going to have six symbols in your movie, they better be a door, a quill, a crown, 
and a tombstone, you know, like swing for the big shit that really means something. Stuff that isn't caked in (laughs) meaning, you know? Yeah. Uh, Which makes, you know, it's it's because of the fact that they're universal to some extent, you know? I always go back to the Wally spork fork joke because everyone understands. Or when we talked about the mist, one of my favorite things you brought up was in this same vein where you were like, the brilliance of the staging of the grocery store in mist is that the frontispiece is glass. Glass is one of those symbols. It always means two things. You can see through it and it breaks easily. So Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah, good. Fundamental. Love it. Yeah, he understands that. And that's, um, I mean, going back once again to Hitchcock, uh, I hate to repeat myself, but it's so important it deems repeating, is like he he famously talks about why before making Psycho, he was like, what's the film that you want to make? He's like, I've always wanted to make a film like about a horror scene in a bathroom because there's nowhere you're more vulnerable because he thought of the shower and the toilet. And just because of how the fifties are. I was going to say it has way more impact in the fifties than it would now, because at that time he's saying, you know, that room we all pretend doesn't exist in film universe. I'm going to show a murder in that room. So you'll feel doubly violated because it will be the first time you're seeing a bathroom in a film and you'll be like, and it's, they can put cameras in the shower. Now we're doing Mm -hmm. this now. Yeah. It's, it's great. I, I remember as a kid being talked, down from after seeing Jaws, like as a pretty small kid, probably earlier than I should have. Mm-hmm. Um, remember going like, I don't want to go into the swimming pool. Right. Uh, there's Jaws in there. And they're like, and my brother uh, said to me, uh, he was like, no, trust me, Jaws can't fit in there. He's so enormous. An hour. <laughs> and that was like supposed to like, put me at ease but all it did is make me more terrified of jaws (laughs) it's just like one of those like even a kid can understand and Mm -hmm. it's like uh i think obviously this isn't for kids so horror you can play with a wider range of objects and iconography and emotions um so a paperweight of a pig named misery or a typewriter or a car or pills, uh, definitely serve as, you know, a simple symbology for multiple things. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, this film, I'm glad we took a kind of academic approach to it because I think it deems it almost in a way more than shining because I think Kubrick's superpower is that he is so able to, uh, uh, evoke images that do everything for you. They're like a postcard for, you know what I mean? You know, like boom, there it is. And everyone just immediately understands. I think Reiner is definitely got a, you know, like he's, he's got what it takes to show you it in pieces, but sometimes he can't like necessarily land it like Kubrick. I mean, who can, um, so Kubrick may be of a higher just tier think Kubrick's of juicier. director, but no one screams in this with the sheer animalistic impact of Shelley yes. Duvall screaming yeah. and shining. I am not saying he got it by honest means, but nevertheless, the shining is on film and exists. And I would say, and Jack's right. craziness, intense craziness, like uh, Kubrick pulls out truly harrowing. I always felt like James Caan was an actor going really hard and doing a great job. Shelly Duvall, you can tell something weird's going on. This person's actually in distress. You can feel it from the footage. Right, right. 
Right. And I, th- not, that's not to say that I wouldn't, I mean, we kind of jumped ahead to the stand, which is, uh, the section where we talk about a short review of execution and where exists on the Pantheon. But, uh, I would love to see, uh, shining at this time made also <laughs> by Rob Reiner and penned by William Goldman. <laughs> you know, that would be fucking That would have been good too. They would have uh, done a different It would thing. be so different yeah. too, right? Uh, and yet there's so anyway. many similarities. Though a sheriff gets taken out very similarly to Halloran structurally. Mm-hmm. It's like the mm-hmm. same technique where you're like, here comes the cavalry to save the day. Never mind. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> Walk it away from this and yeah. it resolves itself somehow. Uh, in a way, in a very, like, uh, in both, in both movies, it happens in a unexpected and like kind of primal version of how things tend to resolve themselves. How do they, how do they resolve? They die. The problem dies. (laughs) You know? (laughs) All right, you dirty birds. I think it's time Mm. for final thoughts and then the stand. I do have a couple final thoughts. Uh, If you liked this movie, I highly recommend Come to Daddy, to you, Abe, and to all the folks at home. Have you seen it yet? The Elijah Wood one? I have not, and multiple people have said, go to town. Go to town on Come Come to Daddy, Daddy. and I don't bring it up for no reason. I think it would pair well with this movie, or if you like this, you like that. I gotta watch it. Or uh, there are interesting observations to be made about how we make a that kind of movie now versus how it was made back then and how they learned from each other. Um, but I won't spoil it cause you didn't buckle into this podcast expecting come to daddy spoilers. Um, Oh, I thought it was funny that the sheriff is a very good sheriff. I mean, he solves the crime, but at no point does he tell any other police what he's thinking, what his hunch is, who he thinks did it, or that he's going over there to confront her right, right now? Um, and he's an old, old man. Couldn't he have gotten some backup when he went over to confront her? In fact, it's me- it's like basically mentioned in the film. Like he has problems getting up and down snow, yeah. which is, you know, obviously hard, but obviously he's old. So, but I so. mean, fuck you doing, dude. Like, come on, man. Um <laughs> Yeah, that's all I got. Yeah. That's all I got. So that, I just have that. Um, yeah. That yeah. If we if we clue back into the addiction frame of mind, I think it it has a theme that uh, we've discussed for one of our spec horror scripts, uh, Dead or Half. The idea oh, that yeah. no matter how traumatic it was, uh, you it it puts. No matter how traumatic an addiction experience is, it sure does put things in perspective if you can get out of it. Because he walks with a cane now. This whole thing has been a prequel movie to House. He's going to become a doctor now and solve obscure diseases. (laughs) But he walks with a cane with great pain. And he is forever haunted by a feeling of having to look over his shoulder because who knows what crazy fan might be stalking him. Yet, life indeed goes on. And in the same way where an addict is said to always be in recovery, you could fall off the wagon at any time and you've learned that that will probably make bad things happen to your life. But life goes on. It's just in the back of your mind. You got to do it anyway. And on the bright side, having experienced some trauma, and this isn't true only of addiction, but I think that's what the movie's about. He's happy just to be here. She says, like, are you still so concerned about your writing being important? And he goes, oh, I mean, I write what I want to write. And she's like, well, just so you know, your new book that you took very seriously, 
that's not about misery. Uh, the critics are saying it's they get it. They're saying it's very sophisticated and you've taken a step up. Isn't that what you wanted at the beginning of the film? And he goes, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, that's great. And she's like, what's your problem? And he goes, no, I appreciate, of course. No, I'm happy. It's just like, I have perspective, you know? I'm just happy <laughs> yeah, to be yeah, alive. perspective of what the cell it's is. It's hard to get that and excited I've... about that when I'm happy just to be alive. And that's and a superpower that... to be happy just to be alive. It, in a, it oh, absolutely. insulates you it's from a lot, of, a lot of self-pity and complaining you could be doing that honestly just makes your life texturally more miserable like you know, a positive outlook makes you happier it's true it's that simple <laughs> yeah and that's the thing kind of one of the specific things about trauma which i thought was eloquent that stephen king did and goldman did in this uh is that at that same moment they're like she mentions like you should do nonfiction. You should do this whole fucking thing that happened to you last year. And he's like, yeah, I mean, well, I will say this. It did. I I'm, you know, in a strange way as he's seen Kathy Bates literally being, uh, like walking up to him. He's like, I think it helped me. And then, uh, and I think it's part of that is that self like kind of realization or actualization that's happening in James Conn in terms of like, yeah, it made me kind of that wake up call. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's also just, I think what he said, he's saying there is that, by having this whole ordeal, I realize what the world is and what the stakes are and what like what matters and what doesn't. And so now I have on in my head, I realize that anyone is fucking crazy. Right. And that's something. So it's it's yes, he is waking up. Yes, it's all good. Yes, he perceives it as good. But it's also like you are fucking through trauma, dude, like you have gone through an ordeal. You now came out of that ordeal thinking the world is a certain thing now. Right. He's not putting the pointers back on and going like, is that reality? Was I a part of a very specific nuance of reality or was the, is this commonplace? Uh, whether you, the viewer will perceive that as like, Oh, that did, that is a good realization or not. That's up to you. But like, ultimately he is doing that. He's kind of just falling out of one worldview into another. That's all most of us can do. And it's kind of like a deep thing to say, even though he wasn't Stockholm syndromed in the end, he still is because that's how all of us do. Oh, interesting. Well, he's not Stockholm syndrome in the sense that he was not drawn into her delusion, but he not does she say wanted, but something he, that she, if she were alive, would love to hear him say, she's everywhere. which he says, well, he literally says, and in a way I wrote it for Annie Wilkes, that whole experience did help me. And he's not saying she mm. meant to help me still fuck her, but yeah. it did help me, which is just weird when you think about it. Cause I'm sure she would love to hear that, but fuck her also. <laughs> yeah. And it's cause, because trauma strengthens too, you because yeah. in the same way that she hated, like, I just don't like all this profanity, you know, she wanted it a certain way. He's writing, uh, his own life and giving a real estate and his brain to her uh, based on yeah. a fiction of his instead of a fiction of hers, she would hate it. But of course, well, he's not going to tell uh, the story the way she viewed it. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. If the only thing that mattered was that I occupy your mind, 
you did it, (laughs) you you know, like just like any traumatic experience would. And I think that that's something that like to carry, that's why uh, I think that when James Conn kind of gives a smirk when he does that, that's what leads me to this being like basically a twilight zone ending. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's like, yes, the horror immediate has been deferred. It has been sent away, but the horror reality still is prevalent and can happen at any time. Right. And then that, that realization is kind of, I think what King's trying to do there. Right? Definitely. Is that he's, he's like saying any fan can do this again to anyone else or to him, right. you know, who knows? And she says, so. I'm your number one, whatever. I'm your number one fan. Yeah. I'm a symbology of what that is. If you'd like a molten lava like, cake, it takes about 20 minutes. Is that all right? I'm your number one fan. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get out of here. But first, let's take the stand. You're on our, I'll allow it, the stand. <laughs> um, this is a very short segment at present, which will get longer and longer. I can't wait for like episode 85. Because um, I don't know about you, but I plan to always list my full list. And just let it get along. Oh, so for now, yeah. I it's been easy, but you're right. I have to kind of yeah. find a system that I put on my notes. Because ultimately, I, I, I do want us to end with our unique list of what we think is the definitive ranking of Stephen mm-hmm. King adaptations. And for me right now, well, we've only got three right now. Should we say them at the same time and see if they're the same so far? Yep. All right. Yep. So number one is The Shining. Shining. Number two is Misery. Misery. Number three is The Mist. Shining Misery Mist. And uh, yeah. It's a done deal. Hey, if, if you have any suggestions about what you'd like us to cover next or ever... Um, as long as it's a work of Stephen King, hit us up on Twitter. I am at Swame underscore Corp. Where are you at? I'm at Abe the Mighty. That's right. Mm-hmm. True story. And you can support us at patreon.com slash small beans, which we'd really appreciate. If you can't afford it right now, we'd love it if you'd go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. We're your biggest fans. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Are we out? Are we out? <laughs> This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.